Hello and welcome to Bone Up, the podcast all about bones, how we make them, why we break them, and if we fully understand them. I'm David Armstrong. Hi, and I'm Richie Abel. And over this series, we're going to be exploring osteoporosis, bones, what we know and what we're yet to discover. And we hope you will join us on the journey. So for anyone keen to learn more about our infrastructure of calcified collagen, this is Bone Up. So hello and welcome back to Bone Up the Podcast. Happy New Year, Richie. Happy New Year to all our listeners. Uh, our first podcast of 2022, or as some people are calling it, our third go at 2020. <laughs> that is so true. That is so true. Happy New Year, David. It's really good to see you again. And Happy New Year to all the listeners. We've got a really exciting uh, program set out for this year, and we hope you're going to join us on the journey as we continue. So David, if we look back at our uh, recent episodes, there's a bit of an elephant in the room we haven't addressed. Yeah, I thought I smelled something at this end as well, but obviously you can uh, you can smell it at your end too, Richie. Oh yes. So uh, all of the guests that we've had on on the show to talk so far have really focused on bone, which, you know, makes sense. It's a podcast about osteoporosis. But really, bones don't work in isolation. They're just one organ, one system in our bodies. Yeah, I think that's true. As, as bone experts, we're almost taught in some ways to, to ignore uh, muscles. And uh, we tend to sort of ignore them on x-rays. The surgeons pull the muscle to one side when they're operating. Uh, and yet muscles and bones exist together. You find them together in the body. They develop from the same stem cell. And they really are very closely related in everything we do. Especially in fractures, I guess. If you don't have strong muscles, you're more likely to fall over. You're less able to brace yourself when you fall. So surely muscles are an important risk factor in falls and therefore fractures. That's right. I mean, uh, until now, you've heard us talk a lot about osteoporosis or maybe use this other word, osteopenia. But you will hear many doctors now talk about sarcopenia, which refers to, to problems with the muscles in the same way that osteopenia refers to problems with the bones. And what is sarcopenia exactly? How do you define it clinically? Well, there are slightly different official definitions depending really where you are in the world. But most people agree that it's a condition where you have reduced muscle mass reduced muscle strength, and then looking at those two things together, reduced muscle function. Is it possible to measure or treat sarcopenia in your patients? Um, the measurement of sarcopenia is something which is in many ways still quite rudimentary when we compare it with how we measure bone. Um, so we can get some idea of the amount of muscle that you have, the muscle mass, you might say, on a DEXA scan. 
you can certainly get an idea of muscle mass on, on CT scanning or MRI scanning. In terms of muscle strength and function, there are also basic tests, which essentially involve asking patients to do things and often putting some measure of strength or some measure of timing on it. So there are tests like the timed up and go, which is really a measure of just how quickly someone can rise from a sitting position and walk off. There's also a battery of combined tests called the SBBF. Now, I realize I'm, I'm speaking to a scientist who measures things in, in, um, in nanometers and, and, and uses lasers to examine bones. And these may seem, these may seem very basic and very rudimentary. But actually, when we're thinking about muscles, it is the global function which is clinically relevant. It's not so much the individual strength of one tiny muscle, but it's the ability of the muscles to get together to rise from a chair, prevent the patient from falling over, or indeed, as you mentioned, actually recovering from fracture again uh, as well. I think it's really wonderful that you can collect those types of clinically relevant measures. I guess measuring uh, somebody's ability to stand up or sit down is quite easy and it's something you can do in your clinics. And I wish I was measuring in a way more directly clinically relevant data in my own research. You know, I can take bits of bone to a particle accelerator and shine x-rays on them and measure them at the nanoscale. But sometimes it's hard to sort of make sense of that research in the real world and make it useful and have an impact on people's lives. And I'm trying everything I can to try and relate that data back to measures like DEXA and clinically relevant data sets that clinicians use and understand. And it's, if I could get to a measurement like sit to stand, I'd, I'd be really, really pleased. <laughs> yes, well, it, isn't it the old thing that, you know, science is looking for very exact figures so that you can do calculations and get good scientific results from it. And that's really important. But then the real world is a much messier place. And I suppose my job as a, as a doctor is then to, in many ways, try to apply that science, both apply it in terms of, of, of the medicines and of the other techniques that we use, but also to explain to patients how their bones work and why they feel the way they do and why medicines work and how medicines work, and therefore hopefully encourage them to, to take their medicines. And therefore, you know, we rely on that sort of very exact scientific work that you that you do, and then we interpret that into the very sort of messy and, and, and grey world that uh, that exists, you know, when I see patients at the clinic. So from my perspective, I think it's better if we start with your grey world and you try and tell me what you think the problems are. Tell me about the situations where you make it find it hard to make a judgment about a patient, about their disease or about the management strategy. And then maybe, uh, you know, scientists like myself, we can go away and try and help research the solutions to those problems, new technologies and new protocols. And I think everything that we do scientifically must start, you know, in the clinic, in your office with your patients. If we try and come come to the medicine from the science, it just never works. You just never line it up properly, which which I've learned the hard way, but I have learned. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, I mean, I, 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 I agree entirely, but I'm just the interlocutor then between the patient and you, because in many ways, I then therefore rely on the patient to tell me what's important. And I think it's, it's, a, it's a good movement within yeah, medicine, yeah. and I think you see it within science as well, is that patients are, are now 
coming on board and are involved. And you certainly see with a lot of the work the Royal Osteoporosis Society has done that we've been involved with, that we try to get patients involved at every level because you need the science voice and you need the doctor's voice, but you need the patient's voice as well because ultimately it's the patient that we're working for. Yeah, totally, totally agree. And hopefully with broadcasts like this podcast, we can try and close the loop and tell the patients about what we've been doing. Yeah. And I think today we have a really good guest for that. Um, You've really outdone yourself today, David. You've got an absolutely fantastic guest. So it's a part of the show where we introduce our guest. And today we're very excited to welcome Professor Gustavo Duque onto the show. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, David. Hello, Richie. Thank you very much for the invitation. We really appreciate you coming on. A pleasure. And uh, we're trying to investigate and explore new areas of bone aging, osteoporosis and fragility. But as we all know, bones don't work in isolation. And we're very excited to talk to you today, Professor Duque, because the people we've interviewed so far have all been experts in bone health. And you spend as much, if not more time, investigating bone as well. So I think today we're going to be able to bring some new perspectives to the audience. And I thought maybe uh, we could begin. Would it be possible for you to explain to our listeners what happens to our muscles as we age? Well, Richie, it's important to first uh, uh, highlight the the connection that uh, muscle and bone have from the embryonic development. There's there's no other tissue, uh, a couple of tissues in the body that are so much connected as bone and muscle. And they represent together about 55% of the body composition in a healthy person. So just to start with that, and this is probably the reason why we are so interested in this uh, connection. Coming back to your question about the aging muscle, um, as in bone, as you know, in bone, we start losing our bone mass when about the third decade of life with about 1% of our our bone mineral density per year. Um, And muscle is interesting because we start losing our muscles um, uh, at about the fourth or the fifth decade of life. And that loss is about uh, between 0.5 and 1% per year. It's very similar to bone. Probably the major difference is when the process starts. And also very interestingly is that um, uh, there is an accelerated loss as it happens in bone as well in women uh, during the menopause. And it's similar uh, with muscle. The women during the menopause lose uh, muscle more uh, like quicker than, than, than men. Um, but again, coming back to the parallels between muscle and bone, uh, if you look at the curves of this loss, which is what we call normal age-related bone and muscle loss, they are very similar, going in the same direction. So there is definitely a connection there with, when we talk about normal aging, about 05 to 1% of our mass muscle or bone per year. That's really interesting. So bone then you start to lose after about the third decade, about 1% per year, and muscle at the fourth or fifth decade at about 1% per year. Right, exactly. Why is it that muscles start to deplete later than bone? Well, this is a good question. It's probably uh, one of the reasons is that because we only measure, I mean, in practice, we only measure bone mineral density. 
Yeah. So and in, in muscle, in the case of muscle, we don't really measure and we don't have, uh, you know, in general practice or these big trials have not measured uh, muscle mass accurately. What we measure is easily, uh, we use DEXA scans and what we measure is uh, lean mass, which, as you know, is like an exclusion from fat and bone mass. So uh, my guess, and this is a guess, and there are some small studies that have tested it, is that if you, if we really have a me- method to measure muscle mass, as we do a little bit with the bone, which, you know, it's not, it's not perfect either, but we have that resource, we will probably find that the muscle mass starts being starts going down early on. Um, so it's probably more related with the accuracy of the method that we use to measure it than the real loss. Uh, again, my guess is that they start losing, uh, we start losing muscle and bone together, all together at about the third or fourth decade. So if we find an appropriate method to measure that muscle mass, that would be probably one of the first findings. Our listeners would all know that as we age and lose bone mass, we become more likely to fracture. What impact does loss of muscle have with aging on our risk of fracture? Well, uh, here we have we should um, establish like a difference, which is also important with bone, uh, is regarding the normal aging versus the abnormal you know, disease, I would say. So uh, in normal aging, probably we can cope very well with a muscle loss of 0.5 to 1% per year. So we can probably keep functioning without noticing major problems. You know, probably our, our, the way we walk will be slower or probably we will be unable to do things that we used to do, you know, go, uh, go upstairs 10 floors at the building. Probably now we, are, we will have to take the, the, the lifts. But that's probably the no, what we will say the normal aging process. And that's, that's important to establish a difference. That this is, here we are talking about two, pro, two processes, the normal aging, and then when the, the loss in muscle mass and function becomes significant, like let's say, let's say losing more than 2 or 3% of our muscle mass per year, uh, that comes with a consequence. That comes with a functional consequence. So we lose the capacity to do now things that are usually normal, you know, very, e- very easy to perform. Things like start getting up from a chair, that's something that we lose when we have that disease. So this, that, that's the big, big difference is the normal aging process versus the disease. And when I talk about the disease, we are talking here about a disease known as sarcopenia, which is a combination of uh, loss of muscle mass, loss of muscle strength, and loss of muscle function. Any of these components will determine that we have, uh, we will be unable to perform the same activities that we used to perform you know, in normal aging process. And we will have a deterioration in terms of an increasing dependence to do all these activities of daily living that we used to do, you know, without any assistance. The other interesting thing is that, um, and that's what we work a lot on, is that at the same time that we lose this muscle mass and muscle function, we also lose uh, bone mass. And we become uh, at high risk uh, of suffering not only fractures, but also falls, uh, disability and very much uh, getting into into frailty and disability. What component of age-related fractures do you think is due to loss of bone mineral density and loss of mass? And what is due to the sarcopenia and the loss of muscle definition? 
This is interesting because the field is moving um, beyond what we used to understand uh, the relationship between muscle and bone. Before, we used to think that the connection was mostly mechanical, you know, that the, the, the muscles are connected to bones and that way the muscles make sure or make, you know, like the forces that the muscles uh, uh, impact on bones were responsible for, uh, to keep, you know, to keep bone mass and, uh, and also to prevent fractures and increase bone mineral density. Now we know that that's not the case. Now we know that there is a communication, actually a, a very uh, interesting crosstalk between muscle and bone that don't necessarily uh, require a mechanical component, not an, a physical connection between muscle and bone. Why I'm mentioning this is because now we know that indirectly or directly, when we lose muscle mass, uh, we are losing the capacity to produce bones because some of the, mm, the factors that are secreted by the muscle that we call myokines, these myokines regulate bone formation. And there are some very interesting ones. Uh, and when those myokines uh, stop being produced by the muscle because we lose that, that capacity, then the capacity of the bone to produce new bone is also affected. So this is the interesting part of the story is that now we, we understand that bone is not necessarily, or bone mass and, bone and fracture prevention is not necessarily related to the balance in bone formation and resorption, but there are two new players in this case. One is the muscle as such, the myokines that they secrete, and also something that we will probably mention later on, which is the fat that infiltrates that muscle and bone. It's probably a third player that we are uh, starting to realize it plays an important role in this process. It's probably one of the most interesting aspects of the research you have done, the concept that muscles and bones are not just anatomically related or physically related, but they're related in terms of communication. Could you sort of tell us a bit more about that? I mean, you mentioned myokines. Could you even uh, give us some more details about the myokines and how they're produced and the influences of the, of the muscle-produced proteins on the bone? Definitely. I will give you a, a couple of examples, David. Um, one is, um, uh, well, because this is a crosstalk, we have myokines, factors secreted by the muscle, and we have also osteokines, which, is which are factors secreted by the bone that affect muscle. So this is bidirectional, which is the interesting part of the story. Regarding the osteokines, uh, the, sorry, the myokines, I'll give you two examples, a positive and a negative. Uh, let's start with the negative. So the negative is uh, myostatin, for instance. Myostatin is a, is, is a, is a factor that is produced, a, a myokine that is produced by the muscle. And it basically is secreted in, in uh, when somebody stops moving, or you know, in, in people is admitted at the hospital, or we have uh, some level of disability or a stroke, then the muscle starts secreting. This is basically an inhibitory factor to muscle growth. It doesn't allow the muscle to grow. What we know now is that at the same time that that uh, also that uh, myostatin affects muscle growth and function, it also affects bone formation. And it has an inhibitory, inhibitory fact, uh, a role, in, uh, an anti-anabolic role in bone, which is fascinating. This is a negative one. Let's talk about an, a positive one. Let's say one of them is the insulin-like growth factor one. It's secreted by muscle. The one that is secreted by muscle, is, it has a strong anabolic impact on bone. This is just, you know, uh, two examples that are uh, probably, uh, uh, probably were reaching 
80 or uh, more of those factors, those myocans that have some role. And there is a, a, a group in, in Augusta University in the United States, Mark Hambrick, has done a lot of work on that, on that uh, area. And then there is the other side of the story, the osteokines that come to muscle and affect muscle. And the typical example is osteocalcin. You know, uh, uh, osteocalcin is very, very well known as a protein that comes from bone. And we know that undercarboxylated osteocalcin has an important role in muscle, in muscle biology, in a way that uh, it could regulate, uh, you know, the way muscle manages insulin, how the muscle grows, and how the muscle functions. That's a positive example. A negative example of osteokine um, uh, could be the, um, well, there are, there are several at this moment, but the, probably the most interesting one is rank ligand. Because rank ligand, which, you know, is produced very much when the bone, we know now that rank ligand can go to muscle and produces a negative effect, very much uh, negative in a way that it affects muscle function and muscle biology, including the metabolic function of muscle. So we here, you know, I can give you two examples, but as I say, there are, the, the field is growing as we speak, and, and more and more we have we have worked in a few of them, but more and more of these factors are being identified uh, as a very complex system of communication, probably one of the most complex. Because that's also important to highlight here, David, is that all organs communicate. I mean, all organs in our body are communicating, but there is no more complex system and more attached and linked system of communication than the one that we have between muscle and bone. So many years ago, when I was a medical student and studied endocrinology, muscles and bones were not included as part of endocrinology. They certainly weren't included as hormone-producing organs. Should we consider muscles and bones really as hormone-producing organs? Because that's sort of the message we're getting from what you're saying. I would say so. I would say I would say they are they are hormone-producing organs. Um, they are very secretory. Um, the interesting thing is that sometimes those factors that they produce could uh, go to the circulation and reach the, mass, the, the other organ, like in an, an endocrine kind of way. But they also can be um, um, can be um, I mean exert the function in a paracrine uh, fun, uh, yeah. way. So it could be also at the mi local microenvironment. Let's say in areas where we know the muscle is in physical contact with bone, without having these mechanical components, these factors could reach the bone and have an impact in the, in the periosteum or the factor that is secreted by the bones reach the, the muscle in a different way. I think the other thing anyone listening to this, whether they were a patient or a doctor, when they hear you talking about, for example, myostatin and the inhibitory effect it has in bone, the first question they will want to ask is, is someone developing an antibody to combat myostatin? Can we treat sarcopenia? Because the patient may say to me, I'm, I'm taking a bisphosphonate, I'm taking denosumab, I'm, I, I'm focusing on my bones. What can I do about my muscles? <laughs> this is, this is uh, David, a very interesting story that unfortunately doesn't have a happy ending. <laughs> because <laughs> because uh, uh, we have tried, and we participated in a couple of those clinical trials, we have tried uh, treating older persons uh, with previous history of falls and sarcopenia with antibodies against anti-myostatin antibodies. I mean, they're basically, they are, they are antibodies against myostatin. One of them is called bimagrumab. And the, the phase two, and I say that is a sad story because it's the, the, the phase two uh, trials 
have shown that um, have not shown very very good results. I can tell you the function it didn't improve that significantly. Uh, there were changes in body composition, particularly in the fat composition, but not very much into muscle mass. So unfortunately, those two trials never moved into a, a phase three uh, uh, trial. Um, that's that's one of the cases. Um, now um, we are working, we and others are working on the nosumab. It's a very interesting story because the nosumab, as you know, is a, is a rank like an antibody. And if, uh, I mean, the hypothesis is that it, it, it and it, you remember the, the, the initial big trials in, in the nosumab, the Frid, yeah. uh, had um, uh, as a result uh, false, a reduction in false that was significant. Yeah. In the, the I think many people listening nobody. to you saying that, yeah, many people listening to you talking about right gland and muscles would probably immediately remember those trials of denosumab showing reduction in falls. So yeah, that's, exactly. I was hoping you were going to get onto that. So yes, <laughs> sorry for interrupting. Yeah. So I don't, I don't think it was never explored and it was never explained. And when I was giving talks, um, uh, especially to GPs, they were always interested in knowing, you know, how can we explain that effect? I think that we are reaching a point where we are starting to understand that effect in a way that now we know that uh, the nosumab inhibits rank like an in muscle. And there is a nice study by uh, Professor Serge Ferrari from Switzerland uh, in, in women, in postmenopausal women. They, they compared uh, the nosumab, solidronic acid, and placebo. And they found uh, that, under uh, that control group, and they found that the, so the participants treated with the nosumab uh, showed an improvement in muscle mass and muscle function, basically lean mass. We did a very small pilot study as well at our center, and we found they didn't find any effect of solidronic acid because, you know, solidronic acid still has an inhibitory effect on rank ligand. It's not as strong as the nosumab. Uh, and we observed that the similar things, but our population is much low, older and at much higher risk of falls and fractures. So we've observed a better impact of the nosumab in that population in multiple functional parameters in muscle. And um, we also observe a small impact of solidronic acid on, on muscle. So to, to come back to your question, I think that there is definitely the biological association. There is some clinical evidence. Are we going to treat uh, uh, osteosarcopenia, which we, as we call you know, that combination of osteoporosis and sarcopenia with the nosumab? Uh, maybe. But that's still, uh, still with, I think we need a very well-designed clinical trial looking at the variables, you know, aimed to, uh, to prevent those episodes, sorry, to improve muscle mass, improve density, which we know they do, it does, but also prevents faults or prevents disability. You know, a clinical outcome of sarcopenia, that has to be measured uh, in a good, well-designed clinical trial. That's where we're looking forward to. It's always unfair to quote back at people things they've said in, in papers from years ago, but I, I'm, I'm going to do that anyway. <laughs> anyway, a paper from 2016, you said at the moment there are no specific therapies for muscles beyond resistance exercise, protein and vitamin D. When I see patients at the clinic, that's still really all I can recommend for sarcopenia. Would you say day to day at your clinic, that's still the mainstay of sarcopenia treatment? You know, this is an interesting question. I, I, I'm sure a lot of the GPs who are listening to our podcast today are asking the same question. Why do I have to identify sarcopenia in practice if I don't have, you know, a magic tablet yeah. that will treat it? 
Um, and, and I agree. I agree. I think, and that's why whether we're working uh, very hard on finding a, uh, a drug or a, a compound that has an, uh, a particularly dual impact on muscle and bone. We want to have this, uh, find this, this compound that will have dual impact, that will improve at the same time muscle and bone. Um, in the meantime, I think that it's important that, the, that still uh, we observe a, a, a significant and benefi uh, beneficial impact of uh, protein supplementation, you know, vitamin, correction of vitamin D levels, appropriate diet and exercise activity, uh, um, uh, exercise programs with the ex um, resistance exercise and, and balance exercise combined. You know, there, there is still, there's still, you know, non-pharmacological, they don't prevent uh, falls or fracture in the same effectiveness that probably a medication will do, as we observe in, in osteoporosis. You know, just um, vitamin D uh, doesn't have a very strong anti-fracture efficacy. Actually, some people say that it doesn't have any anti-fracture efficacy, <laughs> but uh, but in, in, and, but it, it has an anti-fall efficacy and an, an effect on muscle that is variable. It depends on the population we look yeah. at. Definitely, I'm convinced that vitamin D has an impact on, on my population. You know, older. Uh, frail, at very high risk of falls and fractures, they, they, they benefit of correcting the vitamin D level. So still, I think there is a space for the non-pharmacological approach. And that will be my recommendation. Sometimes somebody, you remind me, uh, David, somebody asked me a question about that uh, not long ago. And basically that person asked me, you know, if we don't have any treatment for sarcopenia, why do we bother? on identifying this. Uh, so why do we have to bother on, and I, I, my answer was, well, probably we knew about the existence of pneumonia before penicillin was discovered. So, uh, you know, we were diagnosed in pneumonia in the 1800s. So I think that uh, we don't have to avoid the identification of the disease in practice just because we don't have a pharmacological approach because people yeah. are falling over, people are getting disabled, people are be becoming frail, because of sarcopenia. So we have to do something about that. I mean, this is almost a, a philosophical rather than a scientific question, but I do think it it feeds into what you've just said. We've we've known for 70, 80 years, is it now, that low bone density is associated with the risk of, of, of fracture. Why do you think it's taken so long for sarcopenia, given that muscles have been found beside bones for hundreds of thousands of years in humans? Why has it taken so long for muscles and sarcopenia to be perceived as a risk factor for falls when we've already been there 70 or 80 years ago with, with osteopenia and osteoporosis? Well, I, I think David, that the problem is that the, the the concept as such of sarcopenia is, is recent. It's from the 80s, so it's not it's not it's not very old. Um, some people used to to um, there is a big professor uh, from England, Professor Bernard Isaacs from Edinburgh, mm -hmm. who is one of the was one of the fathers of geriatrics, and he described long time ago the geriatric giants. And one of the geriatric giants that he described was the immobility. So uh, in some sense, you know, the lack of capacity to move and function with aging. Probably what he was doing at that time, it was in the early 30s or 40s, well, 1930s and 40s was described in sarcopenia. But nobody mm -hmm. took that, that concept until the 80s uh, when, when sarcopenia was really described. So coming back to the question, probably because the, the understanding of sarcopenia started with very much muscle mass, 
Then we have troubles identifying and quantifying muscle mass. As I mentioned before, you know, we only have, or we mostly have uh, DEXA scans, which are not the best method. Uh, if we use CT scan of MRIs, it, it becomes, you know, more complicated, more into clean, yeah. uh, research settings than clinical settings. And then the challenge that we are facing now in sarcopenia is the definition. So we have one American definition that involves only functional parameters, you know, gait velocity and grip strength. And we have the European definition that includes also uh, measurements of lean mass by DEXA or uh, impedance. Um, and we have the Asian definition as well that includes the functional and imaging. So I think that until we reach that point where we have a clear definition and a very accurate method of measuring muscle mass, the field is not going to move that much, uh, or we will be still in a lot of discussions about how are we going to identify sarcopenia. Do, do you think there's almost prejudice? Is something I've noticed when you read papers and you see muscle, or sorry, bone mineral density. We can do DEXA scans and quantitative CT and 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 MRI and measure bone turnover markers. But when you read about muscles, there's a lot of it still based on things like the timed up and go test and and the and, and how far you can. It, it seems much more much more basic and much more functional. Do you think Do you think the lack of accurate imaging and sort of exciting IT in measuring muscles actually holds back the perception of sarcopenia as being as big an issue? I think so. I think so because, you know, sometimes the those, those functional assessments, time up ago, yeah. SPPB, yeah. I don't think that you, I mean, for the intervent, post-intervention, so what we do, because one of the things that the patients would like to know is that whether they improve after treatment, yeah? Yeah. So yeah. sometimes those uh, tools don't improve that much after treatment. Yeah. Uh, they improve enough in research to improve our p-value. You know, we have a p-value because we improve one, one score, so one point yeah. in school. But for, uh, for some GPs or patients, you know, in the community, probably that doesn't have any major significance. Yeah. Whereas if we show them a, a report of a DEXA scan, you know, or a good, accurate method of measuring muscle mass, then they will see the improvement. I think that's where we are going to reach a, a much stronger impact in practice. The difference between um, statistical significance and clinical significance? Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's what we are going. I think that we are, if we have a method because still the, the DEXA scan reports, you know, body composition, and we can explain the patient that this is lean mass. You know, that it becomes a little bit more complicated regarding the the the, the explanation to the patient. And the other thing is that the association with with the outcome. And and you guys know uh, very well that DEXA scan is not perfect. That we still see fifty percent up to fifty percent of fractures in osteopenic patients. Mm -hmm. And at this moment, the recommendation is if somebody is osteopenic, you don't have to treat. At least here in Australia, we cannot treat osteopenic patients, yeah. even if they're considered a high risk of fractures. So, um, so it's, it's still, an, an, I don't think DEX is the perfect method. And we are, that's why we're trying to develop new methods that uh, try to evaluate, you know, muscle, bone and fat mass as well within the muscle and bone. Yeah, it's something we've covered in an earlier episode is is the is the frac score and other holistic methods of looking at fracture risk other than over and above just 
the DEXA scan. And yeah, I think the more we look at this, we, the more we need to sort of extend the parameters and you look at muscles, bone, fat, everything together, because all those things contribute to, to fracture risk. And I sometimes wonder if 70 years ago we had started analyzing muscles and bone and fat and use tools like the FRACs to to guide our treatment and someone was now coming back saying no no we should forget about muscles and fat and we should just base everything on what the DEXA scan shows that would seem a, a very retrograde and and, and, and and ridiculous thing to do but in, as you say in many parts of it we're still focused purely on the bone mineral density as the only guide to, to treating the risk of fractures when as you've described it, it's much more complex than that. Absolutely, and, and you know this. This um, I think it's important to mention that we 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 uh, we try to. Um, I mean, this is what we have, and probably we will have it for a, a couple of decades <laughs> until until something yeah. better comes up. Um, so um, we, we have tried to improve and optimize the use of DEXA with the same we have in the osteosarcopenia context. How, how are we doing that is uh, we measure uh, the mid uh, the thigh using DEXA, you know, the region of interest in the mid thigh. Uh, yeah. Uh, a region that we are particularly interested on because this is the place where, you know, there is a lot of bone. I mean, very strong bone. Probably it's mostly cortical, but it's strong bone. Yeah. We have mm-hmm. lots of muscle because, you know, that, that's where probably more muscles are together. And we also have fat around. So uh, we consider that that was probably logically the most uh, um, uh, informative region of interest if we want to look at the story of bone, fat, and, and muscle together. Uh, we have preliminary data that we already published uh, that where we've identified that sometimes, that, I mean, this uh, region of interest is particularly more, uh, has a, a probably stronger uh, reliability and uh, probably a little bit if not the same, a little bit superior diagnostic value for osteoporosis and for sarcopenia altogether when we combine with at least one functional variable. So, um, yes, I mean, not all is negative regarding the DEXA. We still have to do DEXA. We still have to go, you know, order the DEXA and make decisions based on DEXA, but probably we can optimize. And as you say, integrating the story of muscle, bone, and fat into one particular setting. Gustavo, your research incorporates many themes, muscles and bones, falls and fractures, metabolism, molecular biology, and epidemiology, just to name a few. How did you go about building such an impressive and interdisciplinary research portfolio? Well, this is, a, this is an interesting question, Richie, because it's very challenging, I can tell you. But I think it's team, teamwork. <laughs> I think it's, it's very much a teamwork. Uh, and we see, we see it as a, a puzzle where we have uh, different groups working on the different components. But at the same time, when we get all these puzzle pieces together, what we have is a concept that is the core concept. So there are two core concepts that manage our research program. And the two core concepts are osteosarcopenia, which in something is something that is growing, that people are you know, adopting more and more, uh, and geroscience. So that connection between the aging process and how the aging process connects two or three diseases in one. 
So here we are connecting, you know, the aging process and age-related disease associated with risk factors, or two or three age-related diseases associated with risk factors develop and end up on osteosarcopenia. So basically, what we have is, yes, we have biomarkers, we have omics, we have clinical trials, we have, uh, you know, epidemiology. But when we get all these pieces of the puzzle together, uh, what we come out is with the word osteosarcopenia and geroscience. That's that's the core of what we do. So, and that's probably how we identify collaborators, you know, people approach us uh, in a way that they are very interested, you know, people from Bonn who never, and this is interesting because some people who have been working on bone field for 40 years, they never thought about the muscle story. And now they are approaching to us and say, you know, can we work, how can we, you know, use these mouse models or these trials or cohorts, you know, very much interested people from big cohorts, even from, from, from the UK, we have a few collaborators a lot of Europeans have approached to us, and the other side of the story, you know, people with the, who have been working in the muscle field for years, now they are coming and approaching us. So I think that, uh, Richie, coming back to your question, is collaboration, teamwork, and probably a clear core subject that guides the whole process. Writing that down. <laughs> Gustavo, it's been really interesting to talk to you. I think we've both learned a lot today. And it's been really nice to explore these new concepts about, uh, about muscle and bone. I came to clinical medical research quite late in life. And I remember the very first osteoporosis conference I ever went to. The first question I asked was, well, if you're using DEXA to diagnose uh, osteoporosis and predict, predict fracture, why don't you also measure falls risk as well? And I just met with a completely stony silence. It seemed like such a such an obvious thing to do. It sounds like your research is going to be really fruitful for improving diagnostics, preventing osteoporosis, sarcopenia, and osteosarcopenia. And hopefully, if you can come up with some medications, really benefiting people's lives. Yeah, I think that's a really exciting prospect, isn't it? That we will be talking to people in the clinic maybe in 10 or 15 years, not just about drugs for osteopenia, but drugs maybe for sarcopenia as well. And as you say, perhaps they might even be some of the same drugs. Yeah, I, I think, uh, thank you. Thank you for your, for your comments. And, you know, the way I see it is that at this moment, we have like a fragmented model that goes from research silos and sometimes a little bit of separate intervention in clinical. I don't know how is, it, is the practice in your, in your local hospitals, but you know here we have the, the bone clinic is one side of the hospital, the falls clinic is another side of the hospital. They never talk to each other. They never see the same patients and they, those patients have the same problem. They're, they're falling and fracturing. So why not to have an integrated model? That's, that's our objective is integrate every aspect of this concept from basic sciences to clinical practice to the community all together you know i think we are going to save cost and we have uh, we will increase effectiveness i think it's the same everywhere in the world right fantastic thank you very much thank you very much for the invitation it's been really good talking to you thank you and th thank you for getting up early to speak to us today as well <laughs> That's fine. <laughs>
so Richie, that was a, a really uh, fascinating interview with, with Gustavo. A lot in it about science and maybe about basic science. So as the scientist between us, what did, what did you take out of that? Uh, it was absolutely fascinating. I really enjoyed that interview. I learned a lot. And normally I wouldn't with this kind of topic. If I'm completely honest, when I hear words like cytokine and myogai, it kind of gives me the heebie-jeebies. And at a lot of conferences, I might hear these talks about, you know, the detailed molecular biochemistry of bone. And I I really struggle to focus. And often it's because people are just not explaining the work in a way that I can understand. And what I really admire about Gustavo is the way that he was able to explain these really difficult concepts in a really easy to understand way. And because of that, I have appreciated the importance of the work that he is doing. And it's absolutely amazing to think that bone and muscle might be sending these small molecules between each other to communicate. And if if you think about it in hindsight, it makes complete sense that two organs, two systems that develop so closely together and work so closely together would be communicating with each other. But to actually pinpoint it is amazing. To think that the bones might be feeling the loads that are imparted upon them as we walk around, as we move, as we jump, as we fall over. And that when the amount of loading goes up, they might be sending signals to the muscles to say, hey, we're experiencing much higher loads than normal. You you muscles, you need to get bigger. You need to be able to help us support these loads. Or alternatively, you know, maybe somebody's using their muscles more, they're being more active and the muscles can feel that and they're sending signals to the bone saying, look, you know, you need to get bigger because we're going to, we're going to get bigger and we're going to put bigger loads on you. That feedback loop is absolutely amazing. And I, I suppose Gustavo also pointed out that there might be some negative aspects here like bed rest. And maybe if there's bed rest, this feedback between the two systems, you know, could, I suppose, potentially increase the rate at which you lose muscle and bone. But either way, if we can understand this really important system for good or bad, we're going to be able to design interventions and treatments that could potentially tackle bone health and muscle health at the same time. And the story he made about denosumab was absolutely fantastic. The thought that when somebody was given denosumab to increase their bone mineral density, that there was also a decrease in falls risk is fascinating. You know, the fact that somebody on the trial was aware enough to measure falls and then yeah. to spot that the risk went up, that's just absolutely tremendous. Yeah. And a really, a really wonderful thing about research is, is that you start out with a hypothesis and you want to test that hypothesis and try and prove it. You know, this might seem a bit odd, but if you have a hypothesis, which you know is true when everybody else knows is true and you test it and it's true, meh, so what? Yeah. Yeah. If you find a hypothesis that everybody thinks is true and you test it and it's not, then you can overturn a convention. You can discover something really, really interesting and exciting. And yeah. that's where really good research comes from. And I suppose, you know, that denosumab trial is really, is really interesting from that point of view because they started out with a question, does this drug increase bone mineral density? 
And they finished with a new and perhaps more interesting question. Does this drug decrease falls? Which is just amazing. Like, there's just so much from this interview that I take away and I find really, really interesting. Yeah. What, what about you, David? What are your takeaways from today's interview? Yeah, well, isn't it interesting that, that both you as a scientist and, and, and as a physician can both find this so, so interesting? I mean, I, I'm trying to restrict myself to using the term paradigm shift only once per podcast. So I'll I, I use it on this occasion. But, but it really is, you know, I spend a lot of my time in the clinic saying to patients, you know, bones aren't dead tissue, bones are living tissue. And I think this is one of the things we spoke to, to Kasim Javed about as well, convincing people that bones are actually living tissue. Muscles are living tissue as well. Um, and we need to think of them working together. And I think we're getting round to the idea of convincing people that, that they, they respond to the same physical uh, to the same physical, same physical loads, same physical loads, same physical stimuli. This, however, is the paradigm shift, which is that they actually communicate with each other as well, and and that's uh, that's amazing. They are, I think, I used the term uh, with Gustavo, paracrime organs. You know, they actually communicate with one another, and it's something we don't have medication for that just yet. But it's something you must see in the clinic, maybe in the next five or 10 or 15 years, that there will be an opening for specific treatments, perhaps for, for muscles as well, which then brings you on when you think about assessments. Um, and that is that we tend to assess bones. We assess bone mineral density. We've moved on then with fracs to, to assess fracture risk. But actually at the clinic day to day, we do very little assessment of sarcopenia of muscle strength of muscle function and i wonder if we should be looking forward to the day when i not only contact the gp and say this patient's bone mineral density t score was minus 2.7 and their frac score was 32 percent but also say their score for 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 hip flexor strength was was this value and their 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 score for for muscle function in another way was a different value and we use all those things together to assess their future fracture risk and the follow-up from that being perhaps that the gp will contact me five years down the line and say i have remeasured the dexa scan and the t-score has fallen by 10 percent, and that concerns me but also perhaps they might contact me and say i've measured the muscle strength and it's gone down by 15 percent should i be prescribing more protein should i be prescribing more physical activity should i be doing something for muscle strength as well and i suppose that's the paradigm shift thinking not of bones by themselves but thinking of muscles and bones possibly as one unit which we should be assessing together and treating together and monitoring in the long term together and of course just in passing uh, Gustavo mentioned uh, fat cells as well, and probably how muscle and bone and fat cells maybe make up a triad, but perhaps looking at the effect of fat tissue and fatty tissue on, on bone and muscle strength, maybe that's something for another episode. I think I'd be a good candidate for that. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed today's interview, listeners. Uh, we thought it was fascinating, and we'll see you on the next episode of Bone Up. Bye now.